available. And just to remind you that we're talking, and in a, in a strange way, uh, Deepti's uh, uh, passing, her coming into our life has also been a tremendous witness because everything that we have recorded for us here in the book of Acts suddenly becomes real. Because we suddenly see that this gospel, this message, the message of hope, the message of peace, stretches throughout the whole world. And it changes people's lives completely and totally and utterly. Because they're taken from a place of hopelessness where in Deepti's case, she had a plethora of gods to be able to come before and to bow down and to worship. And suddenly, the real God, the only God breaks into her heart and changes everything. And so the gospel that we have is a gospel that needs to be preached fearlessly around the whole world. And yet we walk out of our church doors, out of our front doors, go into the office, go into the place of work, the factory, wherever it is, and sometimes we struggle to share the good news that Jesus lives, that Jesus saves and that Jesus loves you. And so we read uh, verse 8 only because um, conscious of, uh, of time. But verse 8 simply says, you'll remember that we've been going through Acts chapter 1 and reminding ourselves of the basics of the Christian faith. The resurrection is spoken of. Without the resurrection, we've nothing to say. And so... We see here that the Lord Jesus in this 40-day period, as he comes and as he goes and he talks to the disciples, he reminds them of the fact that he rose from the dead and it is in his resurrection that the power is available to us in our lives because without the resurrection there would be no power. If God couldn't raise his son from the dead, how could he save us? And then we spoke about the kingdom. The kingdom of God, remember, lives in us. The kingdom is spread throughout the whole world in us as we come to faith and place our trust in him. And then today we want to look at this verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Is there any part of that verse that you don't understand? Powers given, the commission's given, the reference to us is given because we're witnesses. What is it that we've witnessed? We've witnessed the transformation, the power of God working in our hearts and lives. Now, if this morning you can't say that you've witnessed that, I urge you with all of my heart, and those of us here who are saved would do exactly the same thing is to witness Jesus working in you as you welcome him into your heart. He's calling to you. As you meet and as we speak and as we gather here now, we can hear the Lord Jesus speaking to us. And he calls out to us in his word. He calls out to us in testimonies that we hear. And for those of us who are privileged to witness the testimony of deep tea as she was baptized we praise God for that and as Joe said deep tea did everything she could to be baptized according to scripture it wasn't easy for her and constant pain or medication a catheter a pump pumping morphine into her and yet she was prepared to do something to show to her husband and to her family and to people on the uh, on Zoom, in all over the world, what she, what her testimony was, and if you've got a testimony, then do the same as Deep T did. The Lord Jesus in uh, Mark's Gospel, um, chapter sixteen, and we read this. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and their hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. 
And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick. And they will recover. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and they preached everywhere. Everywhere. The Lord working with them. And confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. And so, if you were able to join us last week, we, we, we spoke together and we introduced this message. And we got to the point of recognizing that we know what the commandment is. We've been talking about this, the church has, for the last 2,000 years. And we asked this, the question, if you can remember, what is it that's missing? Because the picture that we see here, the instruction that we see here in these verses is not something that we're particularly familiar with when we look at the effect of believers of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, even if we were to narrow it down and talk about our own community. You know, is there enough evidence to convict us of going into the world and preaching the gospel? Is there enough evidence to convict us of going outside of our front door and preaching the gospel? And we spoke of the fact that what's lacking is motivation, and it's a very sad thing. We made the point that sometimes we hear the words that we're being led of the Holy Spirit. And we respond when we hear those words wherever he leads. And we would say something like this, I won't go. That seems to be what the average Christian is saying at this moment in time. Motivation is just not there. And so the question is, why is this the case? Well, from the verses that uh, we've just read together and we've been considering last week and again this week, we know that it is the Holy Spirit of God that gives and generates motivation in our hearts and in our lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is just one reason why we need to understand the work and person of the Holy Spirit properly. And I pray that during the course of the next few weeks, as we continue months, as we continue into Acts, that we will be able to see what happens when there is freedom in the Holy Spirit. We're a local church. And our Lord Jesus Christ has said to us, to us, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Verse 15. <clears throat> so what's the job that we have to do? To get the gospel out to every creature, to the whole world. No stone left unturned. No country avoided. No street avoided. No part of a town avoided. They may not be the people that we feel particularly comfortable with, but the gospel is for them, and we need to preach it to them. So we know what the job is, and there are three incentives that are given to us that are contained in this section of Scripture. Incentive number one is the Lord commands it. We've touched on this. We will look at it in a little more detail. Incentive number two, the world needs it. And incentive number three is this, the church can do it. Now when you put all of those incentives together, we have no excuse. There is nothing that we should be afraid of. There is nothing that we should not understand because the message that we have here is really very straightforward. But it should come from our hearts as well. And as I said last week, I long to see the day when a young person comes to me and says, Pastor Sim, I believe God's leading me to be involved in mission work. To preach the gospel. 
And as I said, we'll get behind you. We'll support you. We'll do everything that we can to stand with you. And what a joy and what a privilege it would be to be described as a sending church, as a church who sends people into the world to preach the gospel. But it is the Holy Spirit of God that takes these three incentives and wakes us up, shakes us, stirs us up. And you get that uneasy sense in your heart and in your life because you know there's more that you can do. You know there's more that you should be doing. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit, speaking and nudging and encouraging us to take hold of the task that has been given to us. And this is exactly what is happening in Acts 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the world. So the very first incentive that we have, very simply, is this. God commands it. And he said to them, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Now, I think it's helpful to remember that Mark's gospel is what we describe as the gospel of the servant. Uh, You'll know that each of the gospels at the beginning of the New Testament have a different emphasis, a different way that things are presented to us. And yet when you bring them all together, you get this wonderful picture, this wonderful understanding of all that the Lord Jesus Christ did and indeed continues to do. You know that each of the gospel has its emphasis. Matthew's gospel, for example, is the gospel of the king. Uh, That's why his commission reads at the end in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth is given under me. He's the king. He's got the authority, and he's saying, this is my authority. Go out and do. The king is speaking. Mark's gospel is about the servant. And the key thought in Mark's gospel is service. In fact, the key verse in the gospel of Mark, I would suggest, is chapter 10, verse 45, where we read this. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the servant. And the one word that is repeated over and over again, I think some 45 times uh, in this, uh, this wonderful gospel, is the word immediately, immediately, or as the authorized version puts it, straightway, straightway. In other words, don't dilly dally. Get on with it. Don't waste time. There's a task to do. Do it. And so here in Mark's Gospel, and I say this reverently, and I hope that you accept it this way, is that what we see is a busy Jesus. A busy servant going about the work, the task that his father has set for him. And when you open Matthew's Gospel, you find a genealogy, first of all. And you know those long lists of names as to who came from who and so on. And you've got to be sure who a king is. That's why Matthew begins... His gospel with a genealogy. The Jews needed to know who Jesus was. But when you open Mark's gospel, you don't find a genealogy. Because, and I say this reverently, who cares who a servant is? You see the difference that we have. But this servant came to serve. He was born as a servant. And he lived as a servant. And he died as a servant. Jesus came as a humble servant. And who did he serve? He served man. Prostitutes came off of the street and stopped and spoke. And what did he do? Turn them away? No, he spoke and he helped them. Unclean lepers cried out to him and he stopped and he helped them. You see, Jesus the servant. And when he died, he died as a servant. And when he rose again, the servant declared himself to be Lord. And that's why the Gospel of Mark ends with the emphasis twice in verse 19 and 20 upon Jesus being the Lord. Verse 20, we read it together. They went everywhere. But our Lord was working with them. This one who is the lowly servant is today the highest sovereign Lord of all. 
And in that position, he still commands us to go. We can't argue with it. Two letters, one word, go. Now, if that isn't incentive enough for us, which is simply to obey the commandment that has been given to us, then there's something wrong with us. It's not the Bible that there's something wrong with. It's not our God that there's something wrong with. It's not that there's something wrong with the commandment. One of our problems in the church today is that we don't recognize, as we should do, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, when we begin to think about that, we discover that that has implications in many, many areas of our lives. And that's why the church is in the state that it's in today, is that we say Jesus is Lord, but do we understand? Do we really mean it? Do we really believe it? Because if we do, then we'll go. If we do, then we will take hold of all that has been given to us, and we will make sure that we obey because of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God is more than some sort of celestial errand boy who solves our problems for us. And yet that seems today to be the way that so many of us seem to think. If we have a headache, we pray about it. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying about it. When I've got a headache, I often do that. If we need money to pay the rent or the mortgage or whatever it is, we pray about it. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should do that. But when God has... A mission, or dare I say, a problem, and he looks to us and he commands us, we're not available. We can't help because we're busy doing our own thing. We haven't got time when God comes to us and says, You know that family, you know that man, you know that woman, and I want you to go and speak to them, but we're too busy. We're not available. We want God to be available to us. But it's sometimes so very hard for us to be available to God. Friends, if my hands are not available to do his work, can I ask you the question, why should his hands be available to do your work? If my mind is so occupied with all the things that I want to be involved in, I want to think about, I want to do, why should his mind be available to give me wisdom in the problems of life today? So our first incentive is very simply, the Lord has commanded that we go. <laughs> it might come as a shock to some of us, but God isn't just hinting in his word as to how we should live our lives. He's not just dropping subtle clues, you know, a post-it note on the wall. And if we happen to read it, we'll take it in. That's not how God works. He's given us his word and we should follow it. We should see what is contained in his word and be prepared to obey. God doesn't make suggestions. He gives orders. We're sent, and friends, here's the scary part, that the commandment applies to us all. There's no exceptions. I'm young. I've got to do as my mum and dad say. But you can still go, and you can still speak, as God gives you the direction to do so. I'm old, and I can't get out. My knees hurt. But there's plenty we can do. We can pray. We can call people. We can talk people. We can send emails. We can write a letter. Sounds a bit old-fashioned, doesn't it? But there's so many things that we can do. Our sphere of ministry is, in fact, the whole world, every creature. So we're not short of material to work in, are we? That means that I have an obligation where I am and where I am not. Now that sounds complicated. You see, it's not possible to be in two places at the same time. Now some of us try and we fail in both counts. But we can help other people 
to be where we can't go, perhaps. And so he commands us to go. He commands us to go into all the world. And the word that is used for preach is an interesting word here in this particular text. The word is the word herald. And so, of course, back in Bible times, and indeed many other times as well, uh, they didn't have television, they didn't have radio, they didn't have uh, daily newspapers, they didn't have the internet, things like that. And when a king or a governor had a message to convey to his citizens, he sent a herald out. And the herald would come riding into town on, I don't know, a horse or a donkey or something. And he'd have a trumpet, blow the trumpet to gain people's attention. And he'd shout out, I've got a message for you. You need to listen to this. This is the word that's used here. And I want you to begin to think about just how important it is that we see ourselves as heralds. And all the people would gather around in the town square and the herald would give the message and the people would listen because the herald had come. He had a message to tell and he gave that message because he was sent by the king. Friends, we're sent into the world by the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Do you think he can't give you the power that you need? Do you think that people won't listen to you? You'd be surprised how many people are actually waiting for you to open your mouth and say something. Something that's meaningful. Something that would change their lives and take them out of the misery that they're in. Something that's real because today the world tells us lies. And people do want to hear the truth. They desperately want to hear the truth. So that's the word that's used here. Go into all the world and herald the gospel. The word means a loud public declaration. Now there are of course times when it's not good to be loud in public. But what he's saying is don't hide it. And the number of Christians or people who call themselves Christians who seem content to hide the gospel, where do they get this from? We're told not to whisper it. Don't pass it along as though it's contraband, something that we shouldn't be handling. Let's not be ashamed of it. Let's declare it. Let's let people know that Christ died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again on the third day and he conquered death. The sting of death is taken away and he's alive today. And the bad news is all men and women and boys and girls are sinners. And the good news is, is that Christ died for sinners. Herald the gospel. <laughs> Do you know what? Sometimes the, the way some churches react and respond to these things is you'd think they were agents of the, the, the CIA or something. Because they seem to do everything they can not to invite people into their churches, not to share the gospel with them. The number of churches around here who do not put the times of their services on the notice board outside, if they even have a notice board, is overwhelming. It's like you've got to be on the inside to know what's going on. We're not members of God's secret service. Preach the gospel to every creature going into all the world. The beautiful thing about the gospel is it's not limited by time. It's not limited by space. It's not limited by government. But people say, oh, we have governments today that are against the gospel. And if you were able to come on Friday night, you'll know that the scriptures are very, very clear about this. It was tremendous, by the way, to see so many people come along on Friday evening and uh, I've been overwhelmed by the number of people that have asked for uh, the notes for uh, uh, um, Friday evening and I think Darren's working on getting it uh, put up onto Sermon Audio. By the way, Sermon Audio was hacked last week. Do you know what they took? Have a guess. It was the photograph, the picture of every single pastor that has a photograph 
in sermon audio. Now you'll be pleased to know that my mugshot wasn't there due to the fact that I, I have no idea how to put it there. <laughs> okay. It involves technology, but I'm grateful that, uh, that that didn't happen. But that's what was taken. And on Friday evening, we were talking about the fact that uh, our face, our image, is the thing that the world is recognizing. So yes, governments today don't want the gospel to be preached, but in Paul's day, the gospel was illegal. When Paul had got to Rome, it was illegal. The Lord commands it. So what are we going to do with the orders? And this is what we do with them. We've got two choices. The first one is we obey the order. And the second one is we disobey the order. That's it, friends. There's nothing else in between. There's no neutrality. I was talking to one of the young, uh, the young girls at, uh, at, at Jam on Wednesday evenings, and uh, she's come to know and love the Lord Jesus. And she loves letting people know about Jesus. And she just made the point, everyone I meet, I have to talk to them about his love for them. To encourage them to seek him for themselves. Because of everything that he's done for me, why would I want to keep it a secret? And she's excited. She wants to talk about what she has witnessed in her life. But we see here, and it goes on, and it gives us a second incentive, and that's in verse 16. Not only does the Lord command it, but the world needs it. Now, this is something else that many churches seem to have failed to understand. The gospel is there because the world needs it. People need to hear it. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Verse 16. Now, he's not saying that baptism saves anybody. A great English preacher once preached a sermon on this text against what we call baptismal generation. And there are many churches that still preach this. Sometimes in the forms they use, it's still visible very clearly that if you're baptized, then you're saved. It doesn't matter what sort of life you lead, but if you're baptized, you're saved. And this preacher uh, stirred up, shall we say, quite a hornet's nest in England uh, because he had preached this sermon. And as he was walking along the street one day, a friend stopped him and said, uh, and said I hear you're in hot water. And the pastor replied and he said, oh no, I'm not in hot water. They're the ones that are in hot water. I'm just stoking the fire. If baptism is necessary for salvation, nobody in the Old Testament was saved because nobody in the Old Testament was baptized. If baptism is necessary to salvation, then Peter made an awful mistake in the household of Cornelius. <coughs> he was preaching and he got to that portion where he said that whosoever believes in him has remission of sins. Whoever believes in him has remission of sins. And they believed, and the Holy Spirit came down, and they were saved. And Peter said, who can forbid water that these should not be baptized? Who has, have received the Holy Spirit? How odd that they'd already received the Holy Spirit if you've got to have baptism to be saved. Friends, in the early church, and as we look at the scriptures, we see this very clearly. And as we work our way through Acts, we will be smacked in the face with this time and time again. And I hope and pray we'll all wake up to this. You see, in the early church, believing and baptism went together without any question. And this isn't so true today. Back in those days, it cost something to be baptized. And I know there are people that have faced and they're concerned about the cost of being baptized even in our own congregation. But in those days, it cost a great deal. Today, it doesn't really cost a great deal. Back in those days, when you went forward for baptism, you were being buried to the old life and your friends would spit on you and your family would bury you as far as their affections and their love and their concern for you were. 
You see, it cost something. You don't find any case in the New Testament of believers in the church resisting baptism. Have you ever thought of that? Never once do we see of a believer resisting baptism. He that believes, that's what saves you. And your baptism, that's what let people know that you are saved. That's how you show your identification with Jesus Christ. That's how you understand what he went through for you. Doesn't say that that's uh, doesn't say he that's baptized not shall be condemned. It says in the verse, he that believes not shall be condemned. And how shall they believe on him who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? What he's saying here is this, that people are lost apart from the gospel. Why must we carry the gospel to the whole world? Because the Lord commands it and because the whole world needs it. Our Lord is not talking about universalism here. We have a brand of theology today that talks about this. It's not new in any way whatsoever. It's been around for centuries, but has been dressed up recently and it's been smartened up recently. And it says this, everybody is saved. Joe and I were asked to leave a church because we questioned the pastor on this particular point. He stood up, a church in Woodstock, and he said, everybody's saved, it's just they don't know it. And my wife, in her inevitable style, took the pastor on immediately afterwards and uh, he contacted us and said, I think it's better you don't come to this church anymore. So we were, uh, we were asked to leave. It goes like this, the whole world is saved. And that all missionaries have to do is to go and tell the people that they're already saved. That's the sum total. But that's fake news. That's a lie. It's not true, but millions and millions of people believe it. Friends, does the world look saved to you when you go outside and you talk to people and you listen to the news and you see what's going on around you? Does it look saved to you? Do you feel that the person you meet in the street is a child of God? No. Because the world is in darkness. The world that we see is just one giant graveyard of dead sinners walking. The gospel means light and life. The world that I see is in bondage. And the gospel means liberty. The world that I see is enthralled by sin. And the gospel means feeding on holiness and righteousness. As Sherry spoke to the children this morning. Now, the gospel is for all. How do we know that? Because the scriptures say so. All the world needs it. And the gospel suits everyone. A well-known preacher once preached from uh, John uh, 3 and verse 16. And his topic was this. Can you think of any gift that is suitable for the whole world? And it's a good question. Now, my daughter Isabella loves books. And if you can't find her, she's got a nose in a book somewhere. Um, she, she's been reading the dictionary. I mean, seriously. You know, she's 11. We need to talk to her about these things. Lots of people love books, but there are millions of people who can't read. So you couldn't give a book, could you? Someone says, well, food, we all love food. We all need food, don't we? But the person may be allergic to the food. Money. That's a good one. None of us are allergic to money, are we? But what good is it if you haven't got a store to spend it in? Music. John, you like playing the piano. But what would you do without a piano? And you start naming the things... 
that we give for gifts and you'll find that not one of them is suitable for the whole world. There are vast reaches of people who would say, I don't want that, I don't need that. But when it comes to the gospel, the preacher said that's the one gift that everybody needs and everybody wants. It's just that they don't realize it. The man who is carousing around in lust and sexual desire, his real craving is for satisfaction. The trouble is he's trying to find it in a filthy, stinking pit where young women and boys are abused and mistreated. The person who is amassing money, his real concern is for security. He doesn't realize that you don't trust in uncertain riches, but you trust in the living God. Everything men are craving for, God is the answer. The gospel is the answer. So here we have a message, a gift that's suitable for everyone. Just supposing that uh, you were placed in front of some sort of microphone a bit like this. And you were told that when you spoke into it, the entire world would hear your words. You know, perhaps it would be bounced off dozens of satellites circling the world. Or maybe it just ended up inside their head somehow. But you had the opportunity and you would be able to speak. And whatever was spoken, everybody in the world would hear. What would you tell them? Manchester United won the Premier League yet again. Now, I can tell you that one. I've got no idea who the Blue Jays are, but just supposing they did do something amazing. Okay? What are you going to tell them? The stock market went down. What message would you give to the whole world that they need and that they want? There's only one message that the whole world needs. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He arose again. He's alive today. He was seen by witnesses. And he can change your life. That's it. You see, we have the one commodity that the whole world needs. And sadly, so often, not only do we forget to share it, but we choose not to share it. We refuse to spread the gospel. And all the time, we had better get the gospel out to the whole world because the Lord commands it and because the world needs it. Because of this, the world is condemned. It's condemned. It's condemned. It's a terrible word. I wonder what would happen to our local churches if on one Saturday night... Everybody in the entire world dreamed that they were in hell. Now, we don't often think about things like this, but just supposing that that happened. And not only did they dream it, but the dream was so real that they felt the pain. In fact, in their dream, they smelt the sulfur burning. They felt total isolation, total separation from God. And in their dream, they realized that for all eternity, they would be alone. What would happen on Sunday morning? Well, I suspect there'd be a larger than average gathering in churches. Bibles would be taken off of shelves and the dust blown off of them. Condemned condemned because that's the world and as Joe and I were talking with deep tea we were able to refer to John 3 and verse 16 it's a very simple verse but so terribly terribly deep so terribly important as well the whosoever believeth in him shall not perish 
perish. In fact, as you say that word, you can almost hear the hiss of hell in it. Perish. And there are even people in this barn this morning who when they're truthful and when they're honest can relate to everything I've just said. Perish. Jesus looked at the multitudes and he didn't see pious Jews. He looked at the multitudes and he saw wandering sheep. He saw sheep that had no shepherd. He saw people who were harassed and burdened and broken, who were living on substitutes. And what did he do? He wept over it. And when we look out on a lost world and we see people who are harassed and burdened and broken, sometimes we can pull our pious skirts around ourselves and say, I thank God that I am not like other people. What a travesty that is. But there is church after church who will do that. Even in this fellowship, uh, as the Lord began to bring people, a lady said to me, but pastor, these are not the sort of people we want. How sad. And Leslie was walking along the street because she wanted to share the gospel with somebody. And she bumped into deep tea. And we've seen everything that happened because of what took place. There's a third incentive for world evangelism in this passage. The Lord commands it, that's verse 15. The world needs it, that's verse 16. And the rest of the chapter there in Mark 16 says the church can do it. And I think this is the biggest surprise of all. The Bible says it, but do we believe it? The book of Acts tells us that the church can do it. Alexander McLaren, a great Baptist expositor of the word, called this passage the divine audacity of Christianity. What did he mean? Jesus looks at this motley group of people. Half a dozen fishermen, a few other people. And the phrase 11 doesn't just mean the 11 apostles who were left after Judas' suicide. It means the gathering of the believers. And he looks at them and he says, you can do it. You can go into the world and you can preach the gospel. He didn't say you can change the whole world. He didn't say you can win the whole world. He said you can reach the whole world. They didn't have any assets. They didn't have bank accounts. They didn't have a mission board to send them into the world. They didn't have visas or passports, no atlas, no internet, no Google Maps to work out where they were. Can anyone tell me how Google Maps works? I still struggle to understand how it helps me get anywhere. But they didn't have anything like that. And they were just audacious enough to believe that Jesus said they could do it. And they went out and they did it. And that's why we're here in this barn. 2,000 years later, as the Holy Spirit enabled them, gave them the power, gave them the desire, did you ever notice that whenever a Christian wants to do something, The devil sends somebody along to tell you that you can't do it. Just watch your life carefully. When you hear God speaking, very quickly you will find somebody who says, you can't do it. William Carey was a cobbler, young guy, and he stood up in a Baptist church in England. And he said, I believe God would have us form an association to take the gospel to the heathen. And some theologians stood up, you know, one of God's sanctified obstructionists. And he said, young man, 
When God wants to convert the heathen, and you'll do it without your help. I'm so glad that William Carey didn't listen to him. The church in that great country of India is also so glad that William Carey didn't listen to that man. You know, the church today is pictured in verse 14. Instead of giving, they were eating. The church is sat at its table wanting its next meal. One of the greatest ways to get a, a good gathering at a church is to provide a meal, isn't it? But are we overfed? Are we under-exercised, spiritually speaking? They were behind locked doors here. They were confined instead of going out, isolated and insulated and unbelieving. Oh, it can't be done, it can't be done. Hardness of heart. Now, I realize that verse 14 describes people in the pre-resurrection appearance that they had not yet seen the Lord, but they should have believed the message. Their unbelief simply made them selfish and fearful. The church today, so often it seems, is afraid to set out and do something. We're afraid that we might make mistakes and other people will laugh at us. I heard recently that uh, some of the signs that we put up when we put up signs are annoying other churches because they're pointing people to the Savior. We've never done it before that way. How can we possibly do it? And Jesus said, it can be done. The church can do it now. How can the church do it? Well, the answer is there in verse 20. And they went out and they preached everywhere. The Lord working with them. You ever wondered what the secret was? The Lord working with them. Even though he is the sovereign Lord seated on the throne of heaven, Jesus is still the servant who is working with us now. It doesn't say he's working instead of us. Have you noticed that? Sit down, young man. If God wants to do this, he'll do it on his own. It doesn't say he's working instead of us. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help. No, he won't. Oh no, because the same God who has ordained the end ordains the means to the end. And whether we understand this fully or not, the church is the means to the end. The same God who says people shall be saved in Africa is going to get someone there to give them the message because no one is saved apart from hearing the message. And we have some of these ultra-election type people who sit in their chairs and they fold their theological arms and complacently say, God will get it done in his own time. They need to read the scriptures. It doesn't say the Lord working instead of them. It says the Lord working with them. Nor does it say the Lord working in spite of them. God's going to get his work accomplished if he has to smash us to get it done. I was talking with Aaron this morning about uh, Pharaoh and Egypt. He was going to deliver Israel from Egypt if it meant sending Moses out into the wilderness for 40 years to get ready. He was going to get the message to Nineveh if it meant a great fish swallowing Jonah to get it done. God's going to get it done. But not in spite of us and not instead of us. You know where the bottleneck is, don't you? It's us. The bottleneck's not in heaven. The bottleneck's here on the earth. How can he work with us? 
if we are not with him, if we're not walking with him, if we're not talking with him, if we're not sharing with him. Now, these things are mentioned in Mark 16 are uh, uh, what we call apostolic signs. You read them in the book of Acts. Uh, wherever they went to preach, God confirmed the word. <coughs> How did people know that this was the word of God? God confirmed it. Now, we have a complete Bible. We don't have to have these things in addition anymore to confirm the word of God. But of course, if God chooses to do something, that's his will. Any believer or sinner who takes Mark 16 literally and picks up a poisonous snake is a fool. He is not saying to me today, these are the signs that I perform. These were the apostolic signs that confirmed the word of God during the book of Acts. But friends, the principle still applies. God is saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid if you go out there and there's danger. I can take care of that danger. If there's a price to be paid, don't worry about it. I can pay the price. The Lord working with them. Because the power is available to us today. If we just are prepared to draw upon it. But instead of praying, instead of going, instead of paying, instead of heralding, are we living in verse 14, enjoying fellowship with one another, eating and drinking, and all the while, the world goes to hell. And so the last thing our Lord says to us in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of the Servant is, my work is not done all my work of salvation is done, but my work of witness is not done. And your work is just getting started. My finished work on earth initiates your unfinished work on the earth. And I'm going back to heaven. And I have an unfinished work up there to intercede for you and to work with you and through you to get the job done the battle is the Lord's and let's not say that he's speaking here to some ethereal idealistic abstract church he's talking to men and women boys and girls here in our church friends we have this treasure in this earthen vessel now what should we do with it Bury it? No. Waste it? No. Share it? Yes. Because the Lord commands it, the world needs it, and the church can do it with the power of the Holy Spirit working 